Come on in. We're going to continue our study in the life of David. We've been at it for a while, and it brings us to, does anybody know, what chapter are we in? Six. Six. Good to know. Good job. So we're in, if you have a Bible, open it to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to keep marching through David's life. This is one of the, this is kind of an infamous story, and we'll take it apart as we go. Ready, all? All right, 2 Samuel 6. I'll read you the first couple of verses. Uh, David, again, brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. All right, so let's do a little cultural background here. What do you know about the ark? Noah. Noah. Okay, good. Here's, here's interesting. So when we say ark, you think Noah, okay? The word ark doesn't mean boat. It means box, okay? So when Noah, Noah's ark, we think of it as means like Noah's boat. It really was Noah's ark. And that same word ark, which is a reference to a very, very, very large box full of animals, is also the same word for a different box. No relation to Noah's, but another, another ark. So what is the other ark? <laughs> Ark of the Covenant, right? Okay, what is that? What is the box of the covenant? It's got, what is it, Linda? It's where God dwells. That's right. And that's kind of the punchline of it. So there's, there's stuff in the box. What's the stuff that's in the box? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, like the actual stone tablets, Ten Commandments. Moses' or Aaron's stat. Is it Aaron's or Moses's? Some stick. Aaron's? Okay, it's Aaron's stick. Okay. What else? A jar of manna, right? So it's like a sample of the, of the bread, which name really means what is it? Remember the candy bar, whatchamacallit? It's like it's a jar of whatchamacallit in there. Okay, that's odd. That, that's what's, what's in the box, but Linda, who's in the box? Okay, and that's so odd, right? God is omnipresent. He is all places, but he's especially in the box. Okay, it's just kind of weird. The way it describes it here is, it says, where to go? It says, um, the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. So he might not technically be in the box. He's just above it, right? But wherever this box goes, his presence was. So as this box was getting dragged around the desert for 40 years, what was, what was the emblematic visible presence of God in or on that box? Do you remember this? The glory of the Lord. Yeah, so it's fire. How does it go? Fire by night and smoke by day. Or is it backward? Fire by night, you can see it, and smoke by day. So he is, like it's super strange, but this non-physical spiritual God who is omnipresent everywhere is especially right here. Okay? This box is a big deal. And so we're going to bring it up. Anything else you know about the ark that's important? The lid's called the mercy. The lid is called the mercy seat. Yeah, and there's a couple of different, different ways that gets translated, but there's these, I don't know what you call them, sculptures, statues, whatever, of two angels with their wings outstretched over the top. And this is, in particular, like where God really is and where the, where the offerings to him are made. This is where we intersect and find his mercy. And David wants to bring the box to his new place, right? Which is a good idea. So he's going to do that. But things are going to go sideways pretty quickly, okay? If you wanted to read about the Ark of the Covenant, probably Exodus 25 would be a good place to start if you want to go unpack that. Kelly Sue? I, I was just going to say the significance of the mercy seat. Um, 
Okay, let me try to repeat that because there's no way people heard you. So what's interesting here is Kelly's saying that inside the box is the law, and that's kind of rough news. If we sit judged by the law, it's probably not going to go that well. But in the very place where the law resides, there is this seed of mercy, and that if we're hidden in Christ, we experience his mercy despite our violation of the law that's in the box. Did I capture anything else I missed there? Capture that? The mercy seat. Okay. So here's what happens. Verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with harps, with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Okay? Anybody see anything wrong with what we've read so far? Anybody got a problem with any of this? Don? Oh, yeah, there's something about um, how you move the... Something about how you move the ark around. And I think we're breaking one. Yes, okay. Now, this, that could appear to be very arcane knowledge, right? So they've like, they're, they're got a brand new ox cart, and they're making a bunch of songs, and they're going to go get the ark. But, and everybody's all happy, and everything's great, but they perhaps don't realize that it's all, this, thing, this thing is going to go off the rails, but it's already gone off the rails. Suzanne, were you going to add anything to that, or the same thing that Don said? Yeah, it's supposed to be carried. It was it's supposed to be carried by that's right, okay. Now, it's supposed to be carried by the priest. When they, when they made the thing, in fact, we can go, I'll show you this. Go back to Exodus 37. I'm going to read you. Again, this is, candidly, this isn't the part of the Bible that bores you, right? When you're doing your through the Bible, you're like, blah, blah, blah. You don't care about any of this. But sometimes the details matter, okay? So, um, Basilel, I'm going to butcher every name, just live with it, okay? Basilel made the ark of, of acacia wood two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold molding around it. He cast four rings, four gold rings for it, and fastened them onto its forefeet with two rings on each side and two rings on the other, on one side and the other. And then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and then he inserted the poles into the rings on the side of the ark, to carry it, okay? So this thing is not designed to be settled into an ox cart and transported that way. You're supposed to carry it on poles, right? It's very clear, very explicit. If you keep going, well, don't keep going. Turn your page. Go to Numbers 4. We're just going to cherry pick through some of the boring stuff that you never read. Numbers 4.15. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 4, verse 15. says, After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles. When the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things, including the ark, or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. And if you flip forward just a couple of pages, number seven, six. So Moses took the carts and the oxen, and he gave them to the Levites. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites as their work required. And he gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merarites as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. But, verse 9, Moses did not give any carts to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. You hear it? So the guys whose job it is to move this thing around, they know this, 
Everybody's handing out carts and oxens, but these guys, the ones that are the ark carriers, don't get it. God's very particular. When you move the ark, don't put it on a cart. Put it on your shoulders. Carry it on the pole. Make sense? Um, anybody ever see Van Halen in concert? <laughs> we got a Van Halen? Yes. What year? When did you see them? Okay. So Sammy Hagar days, right? Okay. So I graduated from high school in 88, so Van Halen was a thing back then, right? Eddie Van Halen and D David Lee Roth, and, and then David left, and the Sammy Hagar came in, and everything was whatever. Their, their concerts were groundbreaking, okay? Just absolutely transformative for being the most extravagant shows in the world, right? Just, like, I don't know, I can't remember the numbers, but, you know, there'd be, like, six, eight, 15, you know, you know, 18-wheelers coming in with all the lights and all the pyrotechnics and all the speakers and all the... It was just an absolutely insane show. And it's so insane, so crazy, so completely, absolutely overdeveloped that you have to get it right or somebody's going to catch on fire and die, right? It was a big, big deal. And so when they would build their riders, like the contract, if you're going to have our concert here, these are the rules. And there's 950 rules. You got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And if you don't do all of these things exactly the way we tell you to, somebody's going to die. You have to get it right. Okay? And so David Lee Roth developed this genius idea. Does anybody know the story? What did David Lee Roth do to make sure that they read the contract? You ever heard this story? <laughs> Who said that? Brown M&Ms. That's exactly right. It's about the brown M&Ms. Okay? Do you want to tell it really loud or do you want me to tell it? Okay, so you know how, you know, any kind of rock star is going to have all these ridiculous kind of rules and these prima donna kind of things. He built into the contract. In his dressing room, there is to be a bowl of M&Ms with all the brown M&Ms removed. And if there aren't, he's flipping tables, okay? And it looks like he's just being a prima donna, right? He just doesn't like brown M&Ms. But in reality, what it was, it was a tripwire. It was his way to find out, did you read the contract? Because if you read the contract, you know it's in the contract and, you, and we're done here, right? And so what I want to know is, are you paying attention to the details? And if not, it's not the brown M&Ms. It's that somebody's going to die in a fire because you're not, you're not an attentive group. Did I tell the story right? Is that right? Okay. So I just want you to think about that. This, what's going on here is here's the rules. This is how you carry the cart. You put, it, you put the pole through the things, you put it on your shoulder, and you walk. This thing never goes on a cart. So if we were attentively reading this story, and if we, were, if we had read the contract, if we knew about the brown M&Ms, when we get to this point of the story, we'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Something bad is going to happen, right? But we probably don't read it that way, and they didn't live it that way. You, it's almost certainly the case that you notice now about you got to carry the ark, because you've already read the rest of the story, all right? But the rest of the story, the thing that goes sideways, it started earlier than anybody realized because they didn't get rid of the brown M&Ms, all right? So take a look at this. So, uh, second, first, second Samuel, where are we? Second Samuel, check it out. Verse six, is that where we are? When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out, and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. I think almost everyone who reads that, well, what is your impression? When you, when you read that story, when you read about him touching the ark, you know, the thing's about to fall, he gives it, and he gets struck dead. How does that strike you? Catherine? Kind of unfair. I mean, he was trying to save it. He 
an impulse. I mean, it's not like, I don't care if I can't. Just a reflex. Yeah. So it, it feels unfair. He's just responding reflexively. Like, it's the thing. It's like, what do you want? You want it to hit the ground? Like, so the, right? Makes sense? Yeah. Did you want to add to that? No, no. The thing already seemed wrong to begin with. So now God's hyper-focusing on the fact that he was trying to save the ark. Yeah, okay. So Zach is saying, it seems like, well, the thing has already gone wrong, and now God is focusing on his ability to touch the ark. Here's what I want you to think about, okay? When we, when we disobey on the front end and nothing goes badly, sometimes we think it's every, we got away with it. Have you noticed this? But sometimes the consequence of our prior disobedience it doesn't show up immediately. Imagine we did a, a we filmed a movie about uh, the shooting that took place in Texas this week. Shootings, okay? And you're watching things go, and there's this moment where a school teacher goes out kind of the back door, shoves a chair in the door, leaves it propped open, and then goes back and does whatever they were doing, right? It would look like a small innocuous thing unless you know what's going to happen, right? Somebody propped a door open. Have you ever propped a door open? Yes. Right? Lots of times. Now, we don't know. I don't, I don't happen to know if that door was always propped open because it was, that hallway didn't have air conditioning, and so it was always super hot, and so they got the door propped open, and they, you know, it's just a normal thing. Or if the doors are constantly locked, and they do a really good job, but this particular teacher on one time told somebody to un- unprop the door, and they didn't hear them, and then the, I don't know what any of the particulars are. But what we do know is that Propping a door open is a pretty innocuous act, but it was a necessary chain, necessary link in a chain that led to the death of, what's the number? 19, 20, 21? Children and teachers, right? So I think in this, sometimes like we can be like, it's not a big deal. What's the big deal? Well, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know what's the big deal. Is it a big deal? But it seems to be that one of the lessons of the story is when we disobey, because we don't think it's going to matter, we should have the humility to recognize that I don't know the eventual outcome of my disobedience. I just, I'm just not that smart, and neither are you, right? And there's lots of times in life where I think we make a pragmatic decision, because that rule seems stupid, and an ox cart would be far easier. But we're just not smart enough to know where this story is going to go. Make sense? Yeah. You know, I'm kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm kind of taken with this because how often have I tried to help God out and done something that really makes a lot of sense to me, but it's not going, it's not following what the Lord has put in Scripture. For sure. And I mean, I do it all. Right. Don't we all? I mean, so Helen's, Helen's confession here is... Anybody else want to get on Team Helen here? Anybody ever feel like, man, I just think that's a dumb rule. So I'm going to do the way I want to do it. All right, well, okay, theologically, I understand the case that you're making, but this would be so much more efficient, right? Right? And we're going to prioritize one thing above another. And it might be, it just might be that you get away with it. Anybody ever get away with anything? (laughs) I would guess that door had been propped open before, and I would further guess that there are hundreds of doors in public schools that were propped open last, last week. Don't you think? And the problem is when, whenever we get away with something, then it's like, well, that's fine. And then we, we do it again. And then we do it again. And that's, I think, very often the way this thing, this thing plays out is you just, my goodness, like we're just not smart enough to see the end from the means, right? We just don't, don't get there. We'll start here and then go over to Marty. Yeah. 
So do we know why those rules were in place back in Exodus, or maybe the more important question is, do we need them? Yeah, so I think, so the question is, why, why, why did you have to carry the ark on your, on your shoulder and not, not, you know, on a cart? I th- my guess would be it is because of this, right? Because... There are some things, and this, there's lots of different reasons for different rules, but the same thing with the brown M&Ms and the card. The reason I draw that illustration is that because, because some things are riskier than you realize. The consequence. I, I think God foresaw the likelihood or the risk that an ox cart could stumble because that happens. That's a normal thing. It said, un, I understand, things fall, no big deal. You know, you, you paint over the scratches. But this thing is not to be scratched. This thing is not to be dropped. So... Therefore, carry this by hand, right? There are just things, um, I have a nephew who works in Hawaii and his job is to like transport, like, this is kind of weird, creepy, but like they have to transport human tissue, like for surgeries or whatever, you got to move a kidney or skin graft or whatever it is, like human things. And that's not like, they don't screw around with that, you know, like everything is packed in ice and foamed here and you do this because somebody's going to die. If you don't, this thing where it's supposed to go, something bad, something bad is going to happen. And so when we recognize that things are particularly important, we create a set of rules around them. Say, this, don't mess with this. Sign this one in ink, you know, like, get this right. But eventually we're like, ah, what's the worst that can happen? And we slack off. I think so that's probably one of the reasons here. Marty? So I, I think what wasn't clear to me was, was it like, I'm just going to pop the door open, or was it just a lack of knowledge that he didn't understand the regulation because he didn't know, and maybe it was unintentional that he used the thing. And the lack of knowledge, I think the point is, a lack of knowledge can be deadly. Yes. And I think to the point was the sacredness <laughs> of the Ark of the Covenant, kind of like what you alluded to was why they had those rules was, and if we don't understand the sacredness, if we don't understand the holiness of something, we can put it on a box cart because we don't know. I think you're right. And so whether, okay, so then we have the question. So did David know the rule and he was careless about it, or did he not know the rule? If he didn't know the rule, then I think that suggests that he was careless about knowing the rule, right? So y'all have been given things like, hey, here's the sexual molestation policies. Be sure to read it. And you're like, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, no, no. Maybe actually read it because it's not blah, 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 because these are real human beings, right? And so David shows, in other instances, a remarkable level of insight, um, understanding of what was expected of him as king. He didn't, I think there are lots of places, he knows, like, hey, we've got to, you know, deal with these people and this man, we've got to do these different things. So I think if he didn't know, he had the opportunity to know and the obligation to know, and either didn't know or didn't seem to think it mattered that much. Probably. Something, something in that space. Judy? Oh, similar in that, you know, in everything else he went to God first, and this seems like um, done in a very casual fashion. It's like, let's go have a party and bring the ark and it'll be great fun. But, you know, back in Exodus and all, it's, it is where God sits. You don't go into the tent unless you cleanse and fast. Yeah. And if you go in there when you're not supposed to, you're going to drop nuts, just even going into the presence, so the touching it.
That's right, Judy. I mean, so, so Dave's, as you're saying, his, I don't think his, he wasn't being like, let's hate God by moving it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't being malicious, but I think there was a casualness or a carelessness or a lack of earnestness or seriousness that was really unfitting to the moment, okay? Now let's turn it, let's make it one notch weirder. Okay, Kelly, and then me. Yes, okay, so, okay, we'll linger there for a second. Uh, he, David loves the Lord. He really is a man after God's own heart. And that's just clear in a thousand different ways. And we, we see that he seeks him. But something clearly is missing here, right? Something, something is broken. And whether it's casualness or whatever. And I, there's one other fact that we haven't, we haven't mentioned yet. I want to show you one other thing that might have been influencing David's thinking about this. But the phenomena that says, like, ah, it's fine. I don't, don't, don't worry about the particulars. It's just alive everywhere. Right? It's just all the time. Um, I don't know if you're following the news. Anybody know what's going on in the Southern Baptist Church right now? It's, it's bad. You guys, it's really, really bad. It's rough. I would not... Uh, Southern Baptist Church is about to have a very, very difficult year. It may not exist in a year. Okay, um, A report just came out that Russell Moore has been talking about for, you know, gosh, for a long, months and months and months. Russell Moore, who's kind of a former very significant leader in the Southern Baptist Church. He has been ranting for some time, and a report just came out that basically vindicated everything he says, namely the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Church. I have lots and lots. I'm not anti-Southern Baptist in the slightest, okay? This could be the ACNA, all right? This could be us. It's just yucky. Um, that the uh, executive committee of the Southern Baptist Church has known that there was um, sexual child abuse happening in the ranks, and they covered it up for the sake of the mission. Basically, okay, the word, when word gets out about this, it's going to be bad. It's going to dry up funding. It's going to, it's going to impact, inter, you know, international missions. We're not going to be able to do that. And so we better um, just kind of like, let's deal with it ourselves. Let's deal with it, but let's deal with it in-house and let's not, not let the sunshine in. Well, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. You are simply not allowed to do that. And so a report came out last week that said, uh, that basically exposed all of this. And it is a massive, massive black eye for not just the Southern Baptist Church, because people can't tell the difference it's our church. It's the church. It's Christianity, right? So a pragmatic decision was made. Hey, it's going to be better for missions if we just kind of keep this in the shadows. Just shush about that. Pragmatically, that's better. Good motive, right? Let's, let's carry out mission. Horrible, horrible decision. And now when it comes, it comes much worse. And there's just a million ways that we have a tendency to think. I think my solution is better than this solution. Let's do that. Um, and you can pick, pick your favorite theological issue. There are regulations for who can be an elder in each of those. And this could be very controversial. You can drink it. Um, one of those, I believe, is that the role of presbyter is reserved to men. 
And many, many churches are like, yeah, but not really. I mean, I think women can perform that role too. And while I would certainly affirm to you that women are competent enough to do so, I also think ox carts are competent vehicles for, for moving things. And I'm not smart enough to know the ultimate rules or why God has said what he said, but I kind of do know what he did say, and so I don't think we're going to do that. And this is something that the church struggles terribly. Like, wow, that seemed like a stupid rule. I don't like that rule. That doesn't feel very pragmatic. Let's, let's open these doors up. And I'm like, well, I mean, you could. You could. But I think that God has actually said something about this. And so you could either take what he said and you can disregard it. You can take what he said and obey it even if you don't understand it or don't agree with it. Right? That phenomenon, we could pick on that. You could probably find several more that are more painfully uh, condemning of me if we took the time to do so. But that wouldn't be any fun, so let's not. Right? But <laughs> what, this phenomenon is alive and well. There's often reasons that we're like, ah, I don't want to think about that. So I'm going to do it what I want to do. Okay? Here's what I want you to think there. What is, the, what is the most recent time prior to this event that the ark got moved? How did the ark get moved? Do you remember? The Philistines, took it. the Philistines moved the ark. Anybody, anybody want to guess how the Philistines moved the ark? They put it on an ox cart. And I've got to say, don't you think that when David was thinking about, hey, how do we get the, get the ark from here to there, that his mind went to, the last time the ark went from there to here. Does that make sense? It's a brand new one. It's a brand new one. The wheels are very rounded. Everything is great. And so just, just watch that. Like it's very common. The, the, the means, the means that, they, that David chooses to move the, car, the, the ark from here to there is an imitation of how the pagans do it and a rejection of how the Lord has said to do it. Does that ever happen among us. Do we ever take our cues from a lost and dying world and say, well, that's how they do it, so why don't we do what they do? And I haven't bothered to check and to see. This is a ubiquitous, I'm saying there's a lot more going on in this little moment here than just ooze a touch in the ark, right? And you could look at this and get all testy about it, but slow the thing down because there's an awful lot of times that we, that I, take my cues from the pagan world because it's easier it's more obvious. It seems like a good idea. And I'm just too stupid to see the ultimate outcome of that. Right? Helen? Got away with it. That's right. They got away with it. It worked just fine. And, and they got away with it, and so will I. Has anybody ever thought in their mind, they got away with it, and so will I? Has anybody ever thought, like, just the way that the world functions and thought, let's just do that? That was a good idea. That's a common thing. Suzanne? This is just kind of a, a silly thought, but, like, the ark on the ox cart. I mean, like, did they have the poles? Yeah. <laughs> what happened to the poles? Like, did, you know, somebody else died. Yeah. I would assume that they picked it up with the poles. Partly right. And then kind of... Yeah, I would guess that they got it. That they, I mean, I don't know, but it seems like they would have died if they touched it. So they probably used the poles to get it on there. That makes sense. Like, these poles are very useful to get it on to the ox cart. That makes perfect sense to me, you know? I get it. I, I like making things easy. Kelly? Exodus 25 says the poles are never moved. Yeah, that's right. So it sh they should have been in there. Yeah, never remove the poles, which is, all, which is more clues of God being like, I'm serious about this. Don't touch this thing. Do this. And they're like, well, you know, it's fine. Okay? So be mindful there. Yeah. Check out where they're at. Where what's that, Terry? Where are they when this happened? Oh, I don't remember. Where are they? At the threshing floor? Is that what you mean? Are you thinking of the threshing floor of Aruna? It's a different, I looked that up. It's a different, are you talking about where like the census happens and all that stuff? Okay, there, is that what you mean? No, 
Okay, what's the significance of threshing floor that you're talking about? That's where they separate the... Oh. A couple, there's a couple of things that happen, because I was taking you on a different trail. There's a couple of things that happen significantly at a, quote, threshing floor, where you're separating the wheat from the chaff. That is where, ultimately, I think that's, that's, a, long, that's a long whole story. Um, there's a threshing floor of a guy named Aruna, and a whole bunch of things, strangely, over like centuries of time, happen at the same spot. So this is a different threshing floor, but yes, it's a place where the, where the separation takes place. Yeah, totally. I won't bother to read it, but if you wanted to read about the last time the cart got moved, we're in 2 Samuel 6. The last time it happened was in 1 Samuel 6. If you just want to make a note, and you can see the pagans, the Philistines moving that thing on a, on a cart. All right, so it happens. Uzzah reaches out, and he's dead. And as I said, there's a whole lot that happened before that moment. But once it happens, how does David feel? He is angry. Now, what do you, the text isn't perfectly clear. We can get within a couple of guesses, I think. Who is he angry with? What is he angry about? Let's unpack David's emotional life from 3,000 years away. <laughs> angry with, you think he's angry with God, and why? Yeah, perhaps. That's a very reasonable thing, that he thinks that God is being unfair with Uzzah, perhaps. Right? He's angry Angry with himself for what, Catherine? Because that showed him where he was off track. Yeah. With the Lord's rule. Yeah. I mean, I would think that would hit him right in the face. Yeah, that may have. That if his own misjudgment has just resulted in the death of an otherwise innocent man who was seeking to help the thing, perhaps. So he gets angry enough because... It, that's hard to face right there in front of you, the death of a person, and it's your responsibility. Did you ever do something wrong and then get mad at somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> that, okay, that happened. Does your spouse ever do something wrong and then get mad at somebody else? Has that ever happened? Okay. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord. So whatever, he's got anger, he's got fear. David was afraid of the Lord that day. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. And instead he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Okay, so what did David just do here? Forget it then. Keep your stupid box. I don't want it. Have you ever done that? Like you ever take your toys and go home? Like there is a prescribed method. But at this moment, at least, that's not available to David. He could be like, all right, all right, all right, I got it, I got it. Pick it up, shoulders, go. Instead, he's like, I'm done. Keep the box. And the box goes away, right? And what happens to the people? Do you know what's going to happen to the people who become the possessors of the ark? They get blessed beyond belief. They get blessed beyond belief, right? That's amazing. Okay, so I don't exactly know how this works, but God's like, all right, fine. Isn't that so interesting? David's like, not interested. Keep it. Pound sand. Don't want it. And the box goes someplace else. And God's like, all right, that's fine. Where I am, where my presence is, there will be a blessing. And if it's not for you, it'll be for you. And he blesses this man's family. So interesting. On the one hand, it makes me feel like the, the box is a, is a, like a, a genie or a token or a magic thing, right? But I don't think it's that. I think, in fact, that God is, well, what, I think God is communicating like, that his presence, his presence brings blessing. And if you reject it, it'll bypass you and go to somebody else. That's pretty gripping to me. Chris? Um, 
make sure I'm going along with what you're teaching because I, I, I think I am that it's um, a deeper with him killing Uzzah it's a deeper um, understanding that David would have needed and therefore the, what the Lord is trying to teach is that uh, what the New Testament teaches of fear the Lord by your heart yes. of you need to yeah, read the fine print you need to do all these things and so um, when you don't listen exactly something, someone's going to die and, and repeat that sort of understanding but then when you I, I'm going to bless anyone that uh, listens to me fully and what David what I read is that he was angry with the death of Uzzah but then he lost lacked he then lost trust with the Lord and leading to the being afraid. And then he, later on in the, the chapter, just comes back to him and I imagine asks for a sign of like, I don't understand, through his predecessors, and then ultimately gets the sign. Yeah. The blessing to this house. And goes, that's okay, now I get it. Yeah. Okay, so let me try to recap some of this. So you're, you're, tra you're kind of tracing through what's going on in people's hearts here. And so Uzzah, I think, I think Uzzah's fundamental assumption is that it is better that he grab the ark than that the ark touch the ground, right? Which is perhaps a presumptuous thought, right? Maybe I am holier than the dirt. And I think maybe he's not, right? It would have been a better thing, let the ark touch the ground, we'll deal with the ox cart thing. But instead, as he intervenes, he's thinking perhaps too highly of himself. And the, the hey, it's better off to hit me than to, have, than to have it touch the ground, right? So he's wrong about that. David observes that. And he does. He loses trust in the Lord. He's like, well, yeah, he's afraid, he's angry, and he doesn't trust him anymore. And so David needs a cooling off period. And while we can, we can tease it that he's silly and he's going to miss the blessing, I also, you know this too, right? Sometimes you don't want the ark that day. You all need a cooling off period? You ever get angry? You ever get afraid? You ever decide, I don't want to play anymore? And so David is working through that. And I think that what we can look and see in David's life, whereas he, on the one hand, David points to Christ as the perfect king. And he also points to us as the human beings that are like, ah, I don't know, we're messing this. So I can see in David's failings, in David's successes, I see what the Messiah will be like. And in David's failings, I see what I am like. That I have those same, that same phenomena is in me where I'm like, you know what? Let's talk next week, maybe in a month. I don't want to play right now. And I think that's where, where, where David's at. But as he does it, the blessing follows the ark. And we're not sure. This doesn't specify what the blessing is. But if you look at the parallel account in Chronicles, this guy ends up having like a million kids and grandchildren. And so consistent with what we're talking about in church today, children are a gift. Children are a blessing. And the, probably the blessing on this household is lots and lots of babies. All right? So then, check it out. In verse 12. Obed Edom and everything. Good grief. All right. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and everything he has because the ark of God, because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now check this out. This is, David is going to swing the pendulum very far to the other side. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Okay? So what's, what's different now, first of all? People actually. They're carrying. Okay, there's no oxen, no carts to be seen. So though the text doesn't, the text, curious, this is how you got to learn to read narrative. The text never said, oh, P.S., the problem was the ox cart. They were supposed to carry it. It never tells you that. It just tells you, they put it on an ox cart, it fell, and everything goes all sideways. 
I'm, I'm bringing in some of that side information that's absolutely true. And then the narrator's like, and then they carried it and everything went fine. So when you read narrative, you have to, they, 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 he doesn't do the, give you the courtesy to be like, go read numbers. They don't do that. They just show you an ox cart and then they show you to you carrying and you're supposed to, you're supposed to fill in the gap. You're supposed to be like, ah, I get it, I get it. The problem was the carrying. The problem was what they weren't being obedient to what God had said. And so they carry it. Not only do they carry it, but when they go six steps, they sacrifice a fattened calf. Okay? Now, I can't tell from the NIV. Do you get the impression that they did that for the first six steps or for every six steps? Is that, is that clear in, your, in the ESV? This is what you've heard. And so I don't know if it's like we start this thing and then we're going to pause or they do it every six steps. But do you know how long they're walking with this thing? Do you have a footnote on that? It's 10 miles. If it's, I don't know if it's every six steps they stop for 10 miles. But that would take a long, long time. Okay. Maybe. Do you have, do you have, can you tell Bob? No, it says, the footnote says that's a the debate between interpretations and it was either the first six steps or every six steps, but in a way. So I don't know what it is, but whatever, I mean, I kind of hope it was only just the first six because that would be tedious, right? And it's not required. But what David is showing, I think, is a, a, a supreme level of we're going to do it right. We're going to carry the thing all 10 miles. We're going to be cautious. We're going to honor the Lord. I want the box. Let's move the ark to Jerusalem, but we're going to get it right this time. Right? And that's a good thing. Kelly? It's also the Levites. It's also what? The Levites are carrying it. The priests are carrying it. Which is really important. Are you going to reference 1 Chronicles 15? I don't know. Why don't you? What's going on? I have no idea what's going on in 1 Chronicles 15. Uh, so in that period when the arts of Obed-Edom and he's getting ready to go home, he says to the priest, then David summoned Sabbath and Abba, Okay, so that's good. So you said it's First Chronicles 15? So First Chronicles 15. So I had not seen that. So do you hear, that's the gap, right? Like we didn't figure out how to do it, so we did it wrong. But now we're going to read the contract, right? It's a cooling off period of anger or whatever that. He also self-reflected and repented and recognized the vehicle. We didn't know that. That's right. Right. And you guys, you guys need to consecrate yourself and be ready to prepare and be washed and <coughs> consecrated. So. That's exactly right. And so what, what, that, what that all, I think, suggests, at least to me here, is that you know it. You may have already blown it. And you might need a moment to cool off because you're angry or you're afraid and you didn't do it right. But there's the opportunity to be like, okay, okay, okay. Now that I'm, now that I'm no longer mad and I can see straight, let me have the self-reflection to go look at this. Where, do I, where have I gotten this wrong? What, do I, what am I supposed to do? And as David kind of gets back on track, we also can get back on track and say, okay, Lord, you are merciful and you're gracious. You're going to give me the ball again. But this time I want to get it right. You know? Catherine? Um, I, at first, I was thinking he was overcompensating. Um, like, 
over, like overdoing it because it just seems so extravagant. But after all this discussion, I'm not so sure of that. But like, maybe, I just thought, maybe out of his fears, like, he was still operating in his guilt maybe a little bit. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do this. could get it right. Yeah. I'm really going to, I'm going to show the Lord. That's right. That you see, you, you do see, I think we capture an adequate level that he is, there's an earnestness and a seriousness, and he's no longer has this attitude that's cavalier. Okay, Jennifer, and then DFP, and then we got to stop. You know, sometimes we don't understand why God does something, and, and I think this is a perfect example that God uses everything for good. So I've often struggled with why he was going to die, you know, when he was trying to help. But then God used it to get David back on track. That's right. Everything that people have said. That's right. Absolutely. Totally true. Dan? I, I find it fascinating that the reason, apparently, that they bring it into Jerusalem then is because Obed-Edom is getting all these blessings and we should be getting That's right. I know. And say, hey, wait, look, he's getting all this great stuff happening to him. Um, rather than, wait, this is the center of government, this is where the temple's going to be, you know, no argument like that. It's just, you're missing out, man. Yeah. And, and yet, even that, that's a, God is so condescending to us that even when we seek him for the blessing, the ble he can still give the blessing, right? And he uses that to woo him. Okay, I got to go greet. But let me just say this. Last thing, Michael, Michelle, whatever her name is, my, you know, David's wife, she's not having any of this, okay? She hates this. This is the last time you're going to see her. Remember, we, we talked about her a couple weeks ago, and she's got a really weird on-again, off-again relationship with David. But I'll, I'll just mention briefly, if you read the rest of the chapter, David is rejoicing before the Lord. He disrobes, and he's dancing around in his underwear, and she's like, you look like an idiot. And he, and he basically before the Lord, and then she, she has no children for the rest of her life. The end. Close curtain, right? Things end badly with her. That, and I think that if we, were tra if we were following her, and we saw some stuff a few weeks ago about her, her story ends badly. And the contrast that I think we're meant to get here is that David, though he screws up huge lots of times, whenever he does, he repents and he comes back around and he prioritizes the Lord. And this particular wife just never gets there. She never repents. She never softens. She never acknowledges that. She just kind of has a hard heart, which gives me hope, right, that David, despite his many failings, when, his, when he apologizes, when he repents, when he comes back to the Lord, the Lord walks them back over and over and over again. But Michael, Michelle, she doesn't do that. And her story ends badly. So we, I think, want to be a people that, that your life will always be sin and repentance, sin and repentance. So when you sin, don't forget the repentance, right? Come back. Don't have that hard heart. All right, I got to run. Sorry, I got to go. Thanks.